from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. On the show today, we hear about an exhibition on black hair and its cultural significance, featuring artists from across the nation. And we hear why the New Orleans Catholic Archdiocese has spent the last four years in bankruptcy court. But first... The small town of Lexington, Mississippi, has less than 10 police officers. That makes it one of the smallest to ever be investigated by the Federal Department of Justice. The investigation began after residents in town said police harassed them and violated their civil rights. Mississippi Public Broadcasting's Michael McEwen and the Gulf States Newsroom's Kat Stromquist have both been reporting on this story, and they sat down to compare notes. So, Michael, you've been reporting on this situation for about half a year and were there on the ground well before the Justice Department came out and announced its formal investigation. What first got this story on your radar? So I first traveled to Lexington, which is about an hour north of where I'm based in Jackson, after I was told the Department of Justice was hosting listening sessions so residents in the town could speak about their experience with police. The meeting was being held at the Holmes County Courthouse, and when I arrived, the line was out the door and spilling into the parking lot. And then the DOJ asked members of the press to leave. They said they wanted residents to speak candidly about their experiences with police and were worried about possible retribution should any comments or names be published from the meeting. So I turned off my recorder and left the courtroom and propped a chair next to the entry doors and listened to about 45 minutes of residents testifying to their experience with a culture of violence involving false arrests, sexual assaults, racially biased policing, So it was at that moment I realized this was something I just needed to continue to follow. So one thing that's really interesting about this, this wasn't the town's first brush with civil rights organizing. Yeah, so Lexington, like much of Mississippi, has a long history of civil rights organizing. A lot of people here talk about Hartman Turnbow. He was this farmer from just west of Lexington in a town called Milestone. Anyway, in the 1960s, He led this group of black residents to that courthouse in Lexington and attempted to register them to vote. They were attacked by a white mob, which included the local sheriff. But a lot of people in Holmes County still talk about them as in some way kickstarting the civil rights movement here. A lot of residents or even community organizers I spoke with said that they're the children or grandchildren of some of these same activists. And a number said things to me like, well, here we are again, fighting the same fight our parents or grandparents did. Speaking of civil rights cases, you talked to a few people involved in a current lawsuit, right? Yeah, so that's Peter Reeves, who's the plaintiff, and I talked to him and his mom, Sherry Reeves. Uh, Peter's part in the lawsuit is related to a stop at a roadblock that he says went kind of haywire. So the details of that are a little bit too complicated for me to explain here, but I did want to share a little bit from Peter's mom, Sherry, uh, as she's remembering that night. She's talking about the moment that another one of her kids comes to get her and tells her that Peter is getting arrested. Because on the way to the to the scene, my son that came and told me it was two about two a.m. in the morning startled me. But anyway, he came and told me uh, they got Peter in the back of the squad car. I said, I said what? I said, I got up. I said, let's go. And I said, I said, put your camera. I put. I said, put your phone on camera and and record as soon as I stop. So this memory. It's so striking to me because the first thing that she thought of was, put your camera on. This is someone who has an expectation that everything might not be on the up and up during a stop. And you can really hear the urgency in her voice as, uh, you know, she's kind of in the memory. Sherry has lived in the county for decades, 
and she was really upfront with me that things have changed there a lot. Um, Peter, the plaintiff, too, he said that everything was fine with the police when he was a kid. But then somewhere along the line, uh, things shifted. You know, it's really clear that some people have been traumatized by their interactions with police. But I don't think this is an anti-cop town. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, I talked to Tracy Mayfield and her brother, Clay Montgomery Jr. And her story, it's, it's really pretty sad. Um, her son was killed and she's frustrated with a lot of things related to the investigation of his death. Years ago, she lost her husband to violence, too. I wanted to play a little bit of our conversation on that. Look how many unsolved murders we have. Yes. Yeah, if you pour that up. Just within the last past three years, it's been shooting after shooting. What do you think is driving that? Because they know they can get away with it they pretty feel like much. They can get away with it. Ain't nothing being solved. It's really. I think they're in over their head now because there's so many. How you, you'll never catch up now. Both Tracy and Clay say they'd like to see more from the police. They describe this strange environment where it feels like everybody knows who was involved in some of the most serious crimes, but no one's being held responsible. So bringing it back to the Justice Department hanging around in a lot of lawsuits filed, what's likely to happen with this? Michael, as I think you pointed out in one of your stories, the Justice Department says this is one of the smallest towns that it has investigated. But they say it's more representative of police departments in the country. Like, half the country's law enforcement agencies are small like this. Years ago, a similar investigation led to the New Orleans Police Department entering into a consent decree with the DOJ. Basically, that means that that department has federal oversight now. But it's not really clear what exactly will happen in Lexington. We do know that if the Justice Department finds any violations, they'll release a report. As for the civil rights cases, I don't really know what might happen. That kind of case can take a long time to resolve. That was Mississippi Public Broadcasting's Michael McEwen talking with the Gulf States Newsroom's Kat Stromquist about their reporting on policing in Lexington, Mississippi. An exhibition at the Cary Sarraj Community Arts Center in Baton Rouge invites viewers to explore the journey of black hair through the lens of contemporary art. The exhibition, Protective Styles, Narratives on Black Hair Within Contemporary Art, is curated by Southern University professor and artist John Aline. The offerings span from thought-provoking black-and-white portraits to vibrant celebrations of cultural pride in this collection from artists across the nation. For more on this exhibition, John Aline joins us now. John, so good to have you on Louisiana Considered. Thank you so much for having me, Karen. It's a pleasure. John, where did the idea for this exhibition come from? And, and tell us about this journey of yours to this space in the Shell Gallery at the uh, Siraj Community Arts Center. Well, I, I really have Renee uh, Chatelaine to thank for um, just inviting me to, you know, be a, a curator and to be a juried curator. I am an artist that is interested in highlighting Black hair, um, the narratives that Black here holds, the power that Black here holds, um, especially for Black and Brown folk. Um, it's it's so important to represent yourself in the way that you want to be seen. We should probably define for those in our listening audience that don't know what protective styles are. Define protective styles. Uh, but a protective style is basically a term that is predominantly used to describe hairstyles suitable for Afro-textured hair. Uh, these hairstyles 
uh, can include anything from dreadlocks to uh, cornrows to braids. And it's a way to protect one's hair from the elements. These styles, braids, dreadlocks, and, and the like, have historically been a source of discrimination. That brings me to your call-out seeking submissions from artists. It was in the form of a question, how can Black people and people of color break the chains of which their hair is interrogated? Talk some about that question. What were you looking for? Well, I think there, there are always going to be stereotypes. Um, there are always going to be stereotypes, and I try to be very optimistic, but um, I do think there will be um, moments when, you know, we are kind of seen and judged based on the way we look, the way we dress, the way our hair is um, made, or the way our hair is adorned, right? And so the question that I pose to um, the art community in Baton Rouge, and this was a national call as well, um, was to really think about how they want to be seen as artists, how they want to be seen um, in their black and brown bodies. In the exhibition, there are artists that are utilizing textiles, uh, mixed media, not just paintings and photographs, but also actually utilizing cut hair from their um, from their locks or even from their um, braids to the to, to to then be placed within this context of of art making or or painting. Can you tell us about some of the artists and and their works on display and what drew you to these particular artists? A few works of art that I'd like to highlight are. Rita Harper's Sanctuary. And that is the image that is of the show card for the exhibition. It's basically a, an, an embrace between this couple. And to me, that not only represents this idea of protective styles, right? In the sense of, yes, um, the young woman who uh, who is laying and embraced by her partner um, is, is wearing braids. And then he himself is also uh, he also has cornrows. And so this idea of like protective styles, um, not only in terms of like the the actual hair, but also in terms of this idea of protection and what protection looks like for Black people. Um, so to be honest with you, this exhibition is really about Black love more than anything else. There's also another piece by Delaney George, who is a fantastic photographer. And in this particular piece, there's a mirror and then there's also three golden hair picks. I wanted to include this piece into the exhibition as a reminder for the viewer to, you know, the importance of looking at oneself, not necessarily in a, in a sense of being vain, but to really think about how they present themselves to the world and how they want to be perceived. We're speaking with visual artist and Southern University art professor John Aline, curator of the exhibition Protective Styles, Narratives on Black Hair Within Contemporary Art. The exhibition's currently at the Carrie Sauvage Community Arts Center in Baton Rouge. Now, John, there was a panel discussion at the opening reception. Let's talk some about that. And I understand there was a performance piece that set the stage for the discussion. For the discussion panel, uh, which consisted of Alexandra Barbier, who is an amazing uh, dancer, choreographer, and professor. Um, she's originally from Baton Rouge, and you know she she now lives out of state. But for her, as a way to come back to Baton Rouge and then to give you know, a very emotional performance um, consisting of poetry and also um, some volunteers coming 
to unravel her hair as she's speaking uh, spoken word about her experience of trauma, her experience of being in school and um, basically being bullied uh, for her hair texture or being called um, racist names. And so she was a part of the panel. And then uh, Rita Harper, who was also one of the artists in the exhibition, she has the, the image of the, the show card and also a hairstylist by the name of Keisha. She's really interested in updos and natural updos. To be honest with you, the panel was really um, a way to include the community. So it wasn't necessarily that we were, you know, kind of sitting and just saying, hey, we know everything. This was a conversation that was more so um, a back and forth uh, discussion about, and it was a time for, and a place for people to really just share their experience growing up, share their experience and their connection with their black hair and, and how they wanna be represented and seen. Um, so it was very emotional. Um, a lot of tears were shed. I'd imagine even walking through the exhibition now, it could be very emotional. You have works, work from 22 artists on display, and you think about the question that inspired their, their work being submitted and you're, you're selecting it. What is it like as, as curator of this exhibition to watch people move through it? Well, for one of her, it's, very, it's been a very emotional one. People can really resonate to the images that they see within the exhibition. They are images of not only people who have, uh, you know, these beautiful beaded braids, but also people who have freeform dreadlocks and, you know, that are sometimes seen as being, you know, um, like hood or unprofessional. And my, my whole thing is amplifying these images and actually showing people that these are human beings. These images are not only visual arts, you know, visual art, but they're also images of black and brown people that are human beings. John Aline is curator of the exhibition Protective Styles, Narratives on Black Care Within Contemporary Art. The exhibition's currently at the Cary Siraj Community Arts Center in Baton Rouge through the end of the month. John, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Karen. It's a pleasure. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. For nearly four years, the New Orleans Catholic Archdiocese has been in bankruptcy court. It's seeking protection from dozens of lawsuits after revelations that more than 300 church workers were reported for sexual abuse. The Guardian's Ramon Vargas has been reporting on these cases for years and tracking the tactics the Archdiocese is using to avoid responsibility. The Gulf States Newsroom's Drew Hawkins sat down with Vargas and a survivor of that abuse, Aaron Abair. And a warning for listeners, this story contains details of the sexual abuse of children. Ramon, you've been covering sexual abuse of children by members of the clergy for a long time now. And going back to your days back at the Times-Picayune, can you talk about what drew you to this coverage and how it's changed and evolved over the years for you? It was really a... Um... It was really a tip about a case in particular um, at, at Jesuit High School, which um, I just happened to be an alum from. And I was very able, very quickly able to verify the veracity of that tip. 
and I just stayed with it because I knew that there was a lot to cover that hadn't been covered. And my instinct was that it went a lot deeper than I could ever imagine. And so I just stayed on it. It sounds like it started on a personal level for you and has just broadened. Can you talk about how deep it's gone since you've been chasing this? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that when I realized that when when you look at how that was like a drop in a much larger ocean of, you know, obviously this very painful topic, um, you know, you're talking about, I, I think in the course of, of what I've learned since then, um, you know, you've got less than 80 clerics, you know, priests, deacons who are labeled as credibly accused by the Archdiocese of New Orleans. I know that there are triple the amount of people who have actually been accused. And then when you put together mm-hmm. the, and you know, when you put together the the number of unsubstantiated, like the statistics that we know of cases of that nature that are unsubstantiated, and that's not to say false, right? Because it's not that they're proven false. It's just that there's not the evidence required to substantiate them one way or the other. It's, you know, I, I, I think that I, I, all the evidence available to me, is that the there's many people that aren't on that list that should be on the list and um and you're talking about like triple the number mm. and, and that's that's a conservative estimate and you've had some really significant outcomes in the cases that you looked at i'm thinking specifically right now about a recent one you've done with wwl's david hammer um can you maybe just talk a little bit about the impacts of your reporting i think that the one that illustrates the strongest impact um was Lauren Tucker, right? Um, we were able to. Lauren Tucker was a, uh, you know, just to set it up. Lauren Tucker was a a priest who had been um, basically forced to retire in two thousand two for um, molesting children that he met through his work. And so one of the things that we got an idea as he was reporting that story was um, to like knock on Lauren Tucker's door and see what he said. And mm-hmm. so Hammer went. I went with him. I went with them as well. We walk up, you know, buzz. It's a, it's a, it's an apartment complex and there's like a gate and, um, you know, there's like seven names on there and then there's one that has tape over it. Right. And I'm like, there's one name missing here and I know that he's in here. So like, let's, let's knock that. Uh, let's, let's ring that doorbell. In here, it's not just allegations anymore. Here you're saying that you did this, that you had uh, simultaneous masturbation with uh, someone who was under 16, you say, about wrestling and touching? Evidently, yes. Do you remember these people that you describe here? You have, the names are redacted, but you say that there were overtly sexual acts with this person, uh, but that person was 100% willing, and he was 15 to 17 years old, lived in St. Francis of Assisi Parish? Yes. That sort of almost cinematic you know, doorstop confession, really dramatic. That was, it couldn't be ignored. And, and, and their indictments came down less than a week or, or just over a week later, right? But there are so many other stories um, and other investigations and other reports and other instances that don't necessarily get that attention or that kind of outcome. So I'm curious, what's next for your reporting? Are, you, are there more cases you're looking into in the region? How widespread is the issue that you're considering? Did the culture of covering that stuff up, like, did it succeed to the point that n- everyone's going to get away with it? Or, like, is, is, can, can there be, like, some, 
consequences leveraged against people who knew and did nothing about it or who knew and um, and actively worked against that person ever being held accountable. And I think that that's like the question some some of the reporting is going to reflect like mm. what happens with that. Aaron, turning to you for a little bit, you're a survivor who's been really vocal about what happened to you. Can you tell us a little bit about your own experience and what it's like to be vocal in a place like Louisiana? And just a quick note here for listeners, if you're just joining us, we're going to get into some of the details here of Aaron's experiences of being sexually abused as a child. So, well, first off, let me uh, thank you for having me here today. I'm here as a, number one, as a victim survivor, and I'm also an advocate, a strong advocate for those who are abused by clergy members. And uh, I remember quite well what happened to me and the others that Father Hacker molested back in 1968 when I was an eighth grade student at St. Joseph in Gretna, Louisiana. I'll never forget Father Hacker on his knees looking up at me while he was groping me and groping my genitals. Father Hecker was a monster walking amongst us. My guilt that I carried and the cross that I carry is that all those years I didn't tell anybody anything is that he went on to other parishes and probably did other things to other children. Had I only only opened up my mouth and told somebody about it, maybe the authorities could have done something about it. Um, so this is the cross that I bear and the legacy that follows me to this day. Well, first of all, Aaron, thank you for sharing that with us. I know that wasn't easy. And you talk about feeling like a man on a mountain, yes. isolated, and how it was your own memory was repressed. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about how important it is to bring attention to these crimes, even if it's been decades in many cases? It, it has been. And, you know, there's with, with me coming out and remembering the things that I remember, and especially the friends that told me what happened to them, it just created a sense of having to accomplish getting the word out, letting the people know, letting the, whoever would listen to me, you know, uh, take care. Because this man was still living amongst us. He was still walking amongst us. He was, you know, doing everything you know, even the archdiocese gave him a 60-year uh, anniversary big party to celebrate his 60th year as a priest. And my mantra or my mission is to get the word out to all the parishioners within the Catholic Church to see and open up their eyes to what's going on around them. Uh, but one thing I could tell you, too, is that uh, being Catholic and raised Catholic— I've kind of given up on the Catholic faith altogether, but, you know, I don't need an institution to tell me that the Lord above is my God and Savior, uh, and I don't need an institution to tell me that. So I've kind of backed my way uh, away from the Catholic Church. Thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me. I've been speaking with Ramon Vargas from The Guardian and Aaron Aber from Survivors of Childhood Sexual Abuse. Thanks so much for having Thank us. you so much for having us. That was the Gulf States Newsroom's Drew Hawkins talking with Aaron Abair and Guardian reporter Ramon Vargas about the sexual abuse scandal unfolding in the New Orleans Catholic Archdiocese. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. 
Thanks to our guests, artist, curator, and professor at Southern University, John Aline, Guardian reporter Ramon Vargas, and survivor Aaron Hebert. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.